the church. There's joy in the house of the Lord. You know, uh, at first service, we were talking about that a little bit. That uh, was a pastor said one time, you know, you got the joy, joy, joy down in your heart, but just tell your face too. So let's uh, remember to be joyous and express that. I have a lot on my heart and mind as I have to share today, and uh, it's been a struggle actually as I feel like the Lord is leading me to give a message, and one of the harder parts is what do I keep in, what do I take out, you know? Um, used to be years ago, there was these tent revivals, and pastors would preach for hours, and people wanted to be there, and today people are just like, I hope the pastor doesn't preach longer than 30 minutes, you know, because I want to get to Taco John's, you know, and beat the line, and all those things. Well, as we begin, I wanted to share a quote from Erwin uh, Lutzer, who was the pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois, for 36 years. A wonderful legacy there in that ministry. And he said this, temptation is not a sin. It is a call to battle. Uh, if you would scroll forward, we want that there. So it is a call for battle. And we're going to get into this more in depth, but temptation is not the sin. Um, responding to it, giving into it is the sin. And if we just gather this thought this morning, when I am tempted, if I see it as a call to battle, it is a call to say yes to God, it is a call to say no to the temptation, no to the sin, it will help us as Christ followers as we continue in pursuing Him. Now church, we've been going through the life of Luke, and I am thankful to be doing that, the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. Um, I love... I've, I've wanted for years to kind of do a brief of the Bible from the Old Testament through uh, Genesis through Revelation. And uh, we've been going through this and it's kind of gets stretched out because there's so many things we have to deal with and speak to. But one of the reasons we wanted to do this, and I've been speaking to this a lot, is that our culture, even within Christianity, there's a culture at large, there's a culture within Christianity. The culture within Christianity began to kind of remove uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and the words of Jesus altogether. So what we have today is a Christianity made in the image of fallen people. And so my goal in preaching this is returning to who the true Jesus is. What does the apostles say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about himself? What do we see Jesus actually do? And as we learned last week, he dealt with hell. It is a real thing for us. We, we talked about the loving father and all these things. But the idea, we need to remember that the Scriptures matter. For years, it held a place of prominence in the church for 2,000 years. Even right after Christ, the letters were circulating. The Gospels, the letters of Paul, not long, all within the first century. We believe that a lot of the people who saw Christ resurrected, where they say 500 people witnessed this, were still alive when Paul was writing the letters. And they understood that these were scriptures. Throughout the Bible, we hear the phrase, the word of God. Or God told Moses or whoever to write these words down and tell them to the people. And I remember reading years ago, it was a theologian or somebody went through, it was like over 3,000 times or whatever the number was, that it says the word of God or the Lord God said throughout the scriptures. So this, what we know this to be, we do not worship the Bible we worship the one who has given us the word. He used holy men of God. And when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us it is God-breathed. That these are the scriptures given to us. The Apostle Paul, during his time, was reading the letters that Paul was saying. The Apostle Peter is reading these letters that Paul was given and already referring to them as scripture, as the word of God. The Apostle Peter tells us this is written down by holy men. It's not a private interpretation. 
This is not just made up stuff. God spoke and people wrote it down. And Paul also tells us it is the word of God. It is breathed out by God. So for the last few months, once a month or so, we've been reading 2 Timothy, reciting it together, chapter 3 and verse 16. And I want you to recite that together with me this morning. And the reason we do that is to a reminder. I'm not coming in here just to hear some little speech about being a better leader. You can learn to be a better leader from the Word of God and His truth. But it's not that I want you to be the best employee you can by Friday. It's just not, I'm not trying to do these encouraging things like that. You should be encouraged by the word, but I'm not, I think we can be better employees, but that's not the message at the end of the day. We're dealing with what God is teaching his people. And sometimes that may mean making your employer upset. It may mean preaching the gospel in the setting there. So it's not always the best employee by Friday type of message. But here it is, if you would repeat after me, all scripture is breathed out by God. And is useful. It teaches us what is true. And makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. And teaches us to do what is right. This is given, this is the word of God to God's people today. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus, it says here, and he said to his disciples, so there's times where there's a multitude following Jesus. He's speaking to everybody. There's times where he's speaking to his disciples. There's others gathering, listening. But the message here is two Christians, is two disciples. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. What a great message to us as Christians. Let's pay attention to ourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, this is challenging to do all this. Increase our faith. The Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Prominence here given to faith, simplistic faith that has mighty power with God. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you bless your words as they go out. And I pray simply this, that we sit at the feet of Jesus. Lord, that we sit to listen to the good shepherd And we have learned that the sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. And I pray today that we hear Your voice clearly, that You give us spiritual ears to hear, spiritual eyes to see Your kingdom, that we are born again, that the Spirit convicts us. And Lord, that we follow You. We praise You today in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot here. Um, we, you know, we've recently looked at the fact that there is. We see the loving father dealing with this, the prodigal sons. We dealt with hell, the unseen world last week, Hades and torment. And what we have seen is that the God who receives, there's a God who is this loving father who receives repentant sinners. We want that. 
But there is also the God who speaks of an eternal fire. We see that as well. There is the love. There's also the wrath of God. We're dealing with both of those subjects. The loving Father, everlasting fire. Now today we get into several issues Jesus kind of brings in together that is for us as everyday Christians that we have to deal with. There's going to be temptations. That we have to confront sin. That we rebuke people who are in sin. They repent and we are to forgive them. We are to be a people of faith. So the first thing I want you to see today, church, is that temptations are sure to come. There is temptations to sin. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here and letting them know that temptations to sin is a reality. We're all going to face temptations. We will all do that as Christ followers in the world. And we are to pray. We've learned in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we should be actively praying that. In fact, we should be watching our family members and praying for them not to enter into sin, to give into temptation, that they would be delivered from evil. And we learned also as Christians, we are to resist temptation. When it comes our way, it's sure to come. He says, temptations, it's plural. They are sure to come. They're going to happen. And it's not just temptations that make you feel awkward and you're thinking about. They are temptations to lead you into sin. But there is a temptation to sin. And if you entertain it, so temptation is not a sin. The best way I can describe it is that let's just think Satan wants you to fall into sin, to be deceived, to be destroyed. And so what he does is he takes his hook on a chain. And how does he allure you in that he can hook you into death? And he puts this little thing on there. And I want you to know that Satan has 6,000 plus years on you. He knows human nature. And the Bible teaches us he's coming to and fro, walking up and down in the earth is when he came to God. What are you doing, Satan? We're coming to you. He's, he's on the move. He's as a roaring lion. He knows you probably better than you know yourself. He's observant. His kingdom wants to destroy God's people. He knows your weakness. So he takes that little temptation, that little weakness, and puts it on the end of that hook, and he casts it out in front of you, and you see it. The problem is it's not a sin until you bite on. And you don't have to. It's not a sin. You don't have to give in to temptation. But if you start to entertain it, here's the issue. You're lured away, you're lusting, and this is what I was sharing in first service. Social media is a huge thing today. You see all these images of people, how they're living today, and I was describing it this way. This is how it was uh, a few years ago. We wanted these winter hallmark kind of photos, and we got somebody to take us up on the mountain. It is like seven degrees or something. It's getting below. It was negative. It was cold. I remember I was sharing with the church before I breathed in and I, rem- I heard my nostril hairs go. <laughs> I breathed out and the air turned into a block of ice and fell. That's how cold it was. It was cold that day. We were gathering together. And we wanted this beautiful picture. We're all holding hands and we're like, take the picture. You know, we're all smiling. And then we're trying to separate hands. They've frozen together. We're like, ah, oh, you know, everybody's, it's cold, baby. We need to get back. Our, kid, our noses are red. It's that cold. But a lot of people, they go out and they do this thing. They're fussing at their kids. We got to get a picture because we got to put it on social media. Get over here. Now smile. And the kids smile. And as soon as they're done, can we go now? And so not everything you see is reality on social media. We can manipulate those things. Dating services. Somebody can take a picture of themselves and their picture. You don't see everything. You don't see their house. You don't see their lifestyle. You don't see how they are. They can be deceptive. Now, this is the, the thing here is that you're, you're getting older. You're married. You jumped into a relationship. You have kids. Life gets busy. And you look at social media and you think other people have it better. And it's grass is not always greener on the other side. 
It looks that way. We've had people openly try to um, lure us in in a weird way. I posted a picture of going kayaking years ago. And a girl came in that me and Jessica were friends with, mutual friends, and was flirting openly. Oh, I would love to go kayaking alone with you, Derek. It would be so relaxing. I said, you can go with Jessica. It will be just as relaxing. But people are like, they're trying to, to lure you in because there's this perception and we think it's better. And we have to be in the habit of saying, no, I watch, I am observant. And so I watch who likes my wife's stuff. You know, they love it. And I was like, heart, that's kind of interesting there. You can't do just a thumbs up. <laughs> and so I'll go to, who is this guy? And Bradley so-and-so. Is he married? You know, what's going on? And so, but I found people that we went to high school with who were married who don't even post pictures of their own spouses. But they'll come in and like pictures of us, and I'm like, time to block, folks. You don't get to flirt with my spouse. They don't get to do all that stuff. But we're watching. It lures people in that there's a sensation of grass is greener kind of a thing. It is a lie. It's like the things today. Now I'm from the South. We have a lot of septic tanks where we grew up, not city water. And there's a time you look in a yard. Wow, they got a nice patch of grass. You know, that's some good sod over there. They're doing a good job. Grass looks greener on the other side. Turns out septic tank's leaking. It's getting fertilized really well. And that's how life is sometimes. That looks better, but it is septic. It is sewage. It is bad. And you have to be in the habit of saying no. In fact, it's okay to lean in a little bit from time to time when somebody's talking on social media and who's liking stuff. Maybe we need to be careful of those things. So temptation is real. It's to lure you in. You can entertain these ideas. Oh, maybe it would be better. It is destructive. It would destroy your family. Another thing we need to think about when dealing with temptation is when we see a brother and sister in sin, we don't know the pressure that came against them. And we've seen so many people falling in temptation and we're working with those things. And the forces of, of Satan will come against somebody. And if you see that, we should be reaching out to help and to pray for them. But we also don't know how we would have responded in the same way. Like I remember a guy that fell into an affair and one of the board members was saying, why didn't he just say no? Well, we should say no. And I wish the person did. But when we began to investigate, this girl had actually come to the house. He's pursuing this, you know. And I'm not saying this right. I'm just saying he should have said no. But there's an active pursuance against God's people to make them fall. Uh, I'm thankful that I have been strong when this stuff has come, you know, when these things happen. But you need to be on the lookout and recognize that temptation, entertaining the idea, can lure you into biting on that thing, on the hook, and Satan pulls you in. Now, church, I want to deal with that. There's much talk because the church has been kind of behind on dealing with human sexuality. I remember years ago in college, Dr. Archibald Hart said that the challenge of the 21st century church is going to be human sexuality. And here, we're 21 years into this thing, and it has taken the church by storm, and people weren't prepared. I remember when I was young, people were complaining about people smoking and chewing tobacco, I mean, it's not good for you, I'm saying, but we thought that that was the bad thing and going dancing, you know, and those things. And I understand, I understand some of those things, but look what has happened radically in our culture. And it almost seems we were unprepared to deal with it. And, and this is what has happened. The swift change in the culture has come and our culture has systematically removed God and his expectations. And it has infiltrated government and government, federal government, that is, has control over the schools. And you have ungodly people making decisions for public school education, and they have everybody with money. 
everybody, I've asked around, everybody is, even if they're state-funded, they're federal-funded as well. And a lot of them say we wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have the federal funds. So the government has hijacked almost every system today, and if you don't do what they say or t um, give the rules that they say, they take the money away. So everybody, well, how do we deal with this? Oh, let's give in. It makes you wonder how we ever had education before the federal government was funding everything. It makes us think that we need to start thinking about who is actually deciding things. So in so doing, we remove God and his expectations from government, and thus the schools. And in so doing, Satan enters with his plan. Remove God's plan, Satan moves in. And people still need an explanation of an origin. So what did they do? The world adopted, the culture adopted evolution, Darwinian evolution. Even though he disproved his own theory by saying if he found uh, complex life at a microscopic level, it would undo his entire theory, which they did. But it had already infiltrated the schools. I remember being in the 10th grade and looking at a biology, biology book that had a diagram of evolution of these horses. Evolved, this little horse, bigger horse. You've all seen those things. Come to find out, all those horses actually lived in the same time frame. But they would find these things and, and they were force-feeding young people to believe this stuff in its mythology at the end of the day. This macro evolution has infiltrated. But they wanted that to be the origin the origin of species. You're just a species. You're, you're, you're evolved from another animal. And they've removed that fact that you're made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And so we adopt the survival of the fittest mentality. It's all about me. There's no God. I just want to be pleased and don't care about anyone else. And now the image of God is not only marred because we're in a fallen world. Now it is utterly twisted. Young people are increasingly giving in to the temptation of same-sex attraction or being influenced by an ungodly culture to go to say they're another sex altogether. We've seen this. It's increasing with young girls. Young girls are trying to be boys because who is telling them? And it's not, only, it's not just a, a biological phenomenon. It's that they're being taught it in school and there's peer pressure telling them. So you have a girl that's a tomboy. Well, you must be a boy. And that's what we have. Just because you're tomboyish doesn't mean you're a boy. Uh, just because a guy doesn't have a beard doesn't mean he's not a man. And so we start to believe these, and Satan infiltrates the mind. And I want to share you a story years ago of a pastor. They were having a revival. A revival speaker came in, had a son. The revival speaker speaking, and his son had a fleeting fault of attraction to... Uh, he, he pictured and had a homosexual fault about the revival speaker. And he went home and told his parents. Now, his parents could have blew up and, oh, there you go. Instead, they listened and said, that does not mean you're homosexual. Just because people around you say you're boyish or girlish doesn't mean you're that. And just because the culture is teaching you, how come it's happened all of a sudden? Now, homosexuality has uh, been here for years, but here it is in the last 10 years. Boom, transgenderism. And what I, I, I read something. I was in a debate with a young woman who said she's part of a Christian ministry. She claims to be a Christian, saying we should give out hormones, hormone blockers, that is, to young kids because they feel uncomfortable in their skin. I don't know about you. I've felt uncomfortable at times in life. My dad made me feel uncomfortable with a belt sometimes when I was a kid. I didn't get to have blockers for those things. My point is, I say that jokingly, my point is, is that people have infiltrated, even saying they are Christian, and that we are supposed to give children hormone blockers. That is ungodly. We are made in the image of God. We need to return to the instruction of God that we have an origin of a creator. We didn't evolve over time. 
And now this, this is what we are to believe. And the Bible teaches us that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We've removed good Bible teaching from the church. We've made it seeker sensitive. And now the culture is doing most of the education. Your kids are at school almost seven hours a day, five days a week. And the culture is pushing against them. And we need to return back to good biblical principles. This fallen world is promoting an inclusiveness that ultimately excludes God's plan. I want you to know that God is already inclusive, by the way. Though you are a sinful person and deserve God's wrath, He includes you. Come to Him and be saved. Inclusiveness of the world means we're excluding God's teaching. That you can do whatever you want. And here's the deal. Satan is masterful at lies and deception and planting seeds in your heart that teach you a lie and it cultivates and we begin to believe it. He plants ideas that grow and fester over time. Now, Satan loves to fish in the seas of discontented hearts and a lonely heart. We're dealing with Generation Z. We thought the, the millennial generation was challenging, and here it is. Gen Z is here. Gen Z has this deep sense of loneliness. Now, I could track this, and I could tell you what I really think, and I've watched why, what kids began to cut to deal with the intensities of life. They began to just feel this desperation, um, this despair of loneliness. Why? We've removed God and His origin and meaning and morality from the world. But Satan comes in, this lonely person, and, and then here it is. Uh, somebody comes in and deceives them that, well, maybe they don't love you because you're not a girl, or they don't love you because you're not really a boy. And Satan gets you with his hooks. And again, temptation. The temptation is not a sin. Everybody in here is tempted. And everybody has weaknesses and propensities. The Elkins, you want to know what the Elkins propensity is that has been passed down from generation to generation? Anger. I remember my uncle called. We were t talking about things. He says, Derek, have you discovered the Elkins anger? I was like, what do you mean? I've been living this thing out. I already know it. I get angry easy. I lose my temper. And here's the thing. I had to bring my anger issues into the submission of God. So regardless of what it is, it could be homosexual attraction. It could be transgender thought that I'm actually a girl. I'm actually a boy. And it could be lust that you're dealing with. It's anger, greed, murderous thoughts. You have to bring them. This is what they've been doing from the beginning. Uh, evil is not some new thing. It is increasing in the world, but people sinning is not, nor, it's not new to the world, but we bring it to Jesus Christ. In fact, let's bring back God's plan for people. He loves you. He accepts you. He loves you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you in your sin. And we need to repent from these things. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. The thing is, is that we have a beginning, and here it is. God created all things. He created animals, the world, creates man on the sixth day. He gives them purpose. You're made in the image of God. Male and female, pretty simple. And then there's sin. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They sin. Sin comes into the world. The image of God on our life is marred. We're fallen now. But God loves us. And this is the thing what ultimately happens. We've been preaching for years. Jesus just wants to save you and love you. Jesus just wants to save you and love you, forgive your sins. This salvation is more than that. It's more robust. I repent. I'm forgiven by my sins because Christ died on the cross. His blood covers my sins. I'm restored to the Father. And now I am made new and now remade in the image of Christ. 
What the world is trying to do is live under the image of Adam who is fallen, who is fleshy. We're to be restored in the image of Christ and live like Him. So here it is. I'm, I'm tempted. These are desires I have. I bring them to Jesus Christ. The desire is not to sin as much as it is. We have to bring it. We deal with self, sexual orientation. Well, maybe I'm oriented to be attracted to another guy. And there are guys. I've met guys like that over the years. I've had a guy come to me, caught me off guard. He's like, Derek, you're an attractive male. And I was like, look, this is kind of strange, you know. But he was just being open and authentic. I've, ha- I've had guys who have flirted with me at Taco Bell out of all places. I had a guy, he, he was like, he, this is what he said. It was like a line. He was like, he said, are you like a leader or something? Because you look like you're in charge. And I was like, he was like, did you fall? Did, did it hurt? I was like, what? When you fell from heaven. Did, no, no, he didn't say that. <laughs> but this guy, he was being flirtatious. It was awkward. But I demonstrated love. It's not like, oh, no, you know, weird. But, you know, I, I'm going to build a relationship with people. I remember going through the, um, the drive-thru one day and I heard his voice. I knew it because it's distinctive. And I said, is this so-and-so? He said, you know it. And I was like, okay. So I was trying to build this relationship with people, even through the dynamics of the awkwardness of those things and knowing those things. But we are still to be loving and gracious along the way. And here's the thing. We need to commit to Jesus Christ. The world is pulling people away. And it's not just young people, it's older people that deal with lust and all these things. And here comes the severe part. This is why the next part is so severe. Jesus says this in verses 1 through 2. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one from whom they come. We're all going to deal with temptation, but the person tempting others, pulling them away from church and Christ and all these, are going to be dealt with harshly. They're going to be dealt with so harshly that Jesus says it's better that they drown in this world than to go into eternal punishment. It's basically what he's saying here. So this should be very concerning for us. We have removed responsibility for our culture and their actions, and we're seeing uh, serious ramifications of a permissiveness in our culture. I mean, I can just see it in the employment issues, in the economy, in employees, those who want to show up late, and uh, a busboy wants a 401k, sick leave, paid leave today, and a, a huge package. Because we've permitted a lower standard. And we have to raise the standard again. Again, God is going to deal with those who lead people away and into sin. He will deal, deal um, severely with drug dealers. I've known people who have grown up in church, love God, and were pulled away by simple um, deception. By, oh man, just try this drug. Just try it. You'll, it'll open your mind. What you find out is it fries people's minds. It kills, it kills brain cells. I have shared that I had a friend that wanted me so bad to do drugs that he was trying to throw it in my mouth. Because that's what it is, is that they're destroying their life and they want to take everybody down with them and act like it's a kind act. It is, I think pedophiles are going to be deal, dealt with severely. To take this little ones, it's better for somebody to be tied to a millstone and cast into the water and drown than to hinder a child and hurt kids. What has Satan done? He maybe couldn't get through a, a strong believer, so he works his way into to kid camps and youth groups and things like that, and a pedophile starts working, and people just thought they were great people, and they sexually abuse a young one, and it distorts things. I have a friend who was uh, sexually abused at a camp when he was a kid, and the sharp guy, love him, great guy, loves God. He said, something happened during that time when I was sexually abused by another man. It's like it changes your wiring, and now you feel like you have to be that. 
But he brought that to Jesus Christ. He was restored, but people are hurting little ones. Jesus said it's going to be severe for them. Jesus is is gentle, um, very gentle with children. Let the little kids come to me. For such is the kingdom of God. But if you hurt one of those little ones, God is going to deal. It's not going to be gentle at all. It is so serious that Jesus makes it clear that it is better to drown in this life than to go into eternity after that. Then the next thing we see, church, is that there's rebuking, repenting, and forgiveness, verses 3 through 4. Again, pay attention to yourselves. Uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And Jesus is saying that we need to pay attention to our lives as Christians. We're to demonstrate the love of God. In fact, that means at times it means confronting sin. Uh, we must exercise forgiveness on a regular basis. We must forgive people. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to permit sin or promote sin. It tells us to be patient, forbearing, but we have to confront sin in the church. We must exercise our responsibility to the little ones um, to protect them, to watch what's going on. And in fact, if a little one is in sin or a new believer is in sin, that we have to confront that. We're watching where they're going. It involves more than just refraining from sin. It means rebuking sin. Rebuke basically means correct. If someone has a false teaching, it needs to be correct. If someone begins to, we've had people say, well, I think God is luring me away to this other person. No, 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 God is not doing that. That is a sinful thing. I'm attracted to this other person. Deal with it accordingly. This means confronting them, confronting the sin as they're being attempted. The reason is that, hey, that's wrong. It's for them to find forgiveness in Christ, to repent from it. Because we've watched. The life doesn't get better when somebody goes down those paths. Well, I'm just having one. Well, one becomes two, and then a case. It destroys lives. Let's be watching what's going on in people's lives. Church, I want you to know that confronting sin is loving. It's not easy, but it's loving. There was a a couple I married. I knew it was odd going in. I'm trying to be more cautious up front now with people that say they want to be married and jump and have a quick wedding. And um, they wanted to sit down and talk after the wedding. And one of the, the guys said, you know, I did this. And he just made it sound like it didn't matter. And I'm sitting across, you know, the, the desk there. And I'm listening. I'm looking at the wife. And she's just like, oh, my gracious. And Well, it was just this. It was just a simple sexual act. And I was like, you're missing the point. It is sin. It is destructive. What you're doing is evil. And it's hurting your wife. Now, I don't know if he's repented. They're still together and they have kids, but I pray that he has actually repented. So here it is. Before we actually rebuke someone, we have to consider what kind of person is this? Are they just a seeker? Are they an unbeliever? We can't hold unbelievers to the rules of God always if they're seeking, but we're teaching them along the way. Are they a babe in Christ? Are they a new believer? We need to be cautious It's a lot different than someone that is a leader in the church who begins to sin, right? I mean, a new kid, he's, oh, I didn't know that was wrong, I'm sorry, those kind of things. But somebody that's been established in the faith and they're in leadership and they're sinning, that's something that has to be confronted and dealt with properly. I have a pastor friend that was sharing a story about he was new at a a church and he's meeting with the board and this woman comes to talk to him and says, so-and-so's been having an affair and he's like, what? So he goes to deal with it. Come to find out he had been having the affair for years and the previous pastor knew about it. The previous pastor basically said, well, it's just a midlife crisis. He'll get over it. And he was like, do what? 
what has happened is we're permitting people, even in leadership, well, they'll just get over it over time. We're permitting this thing, and sin comes into the house of God, and God is not blessing those things. So he confronts it. Guess what happened? That family, le- he left, and then two others on the board left because he had offended that guy who had been living in sin, which means they had become a leadership team who said sin was okay. And you wonder why some churches aren't growing or, or doing more for the kingdom of God because they let sin into the camp, into the ministry. We've come so lax today that it, it hurts ministry. People see that and they know that. And I want you to know, outside knows a lot sometimes. Actually, people outside know that the sin is coming before the church happens sometimes because they know their co-worker, he hasn't confessed to the pastor yet. So even so, we must be known for Christ-like love and forgiveness even through this. I mean, it breaks my heart every time I have to deal with some of those things. But we're in a culture now where a lot of people are not even confessing anymore. They're just running. And by the way, repentance is an ongoing thing. Jesus mentions repenting here. A lot of people believe we're not supposed to repent anymore. God has handled the wrath. Everything is gone. But we are to live a lifestyle of repentance. You can review, review the New Testament here. Jesus is saying repent. He came preaching repentance to accept the kingdom of God. Repentance is mentioned five times in the book of Acts. That you are to repent from your sins. And guess what? It's mentioned nine times in the book of Revelation. And guess who says it? It's Jesus. And he's speaking about the churches. He's talking about churches repenting from their sin. You're doing these things right, this is great, but you need to repent from these other things and return to your first love. Repentance still matters. It means turning away, having a change of mind, and returning to the things of God. We must live a life of repentance toward God. Yet forgiveness must also be given. And it's hard to forgive if you've been sinned against. It's not easy. No one wants to be lied against or slandered or hurt or cheated on. It happens. But C.S. Lewis says this in referring to God and His forgiveness. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. A couple came to a pastor years ago and uh, the wife had cheated and uh, cheated on with the guy's best friend. And the pastor said, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to deal with this? He said, I want blood. And he said, it's too late. Christ has already given his blood for this. What we have to do now is forgive and move forward. If you want to make this marriage work. Now, C.S. Lewis also said forgiveness is a beautiful thing until we have to practice it, right? It feels, it feels like a good thing when it has to deal with everybody else. But when it comes to me, it is hard. It's not easy. I struggle with that as a pastor. I've had to deal with so much stuff. So-and-so is doing this again, or this has happened, or someone has, is trying to wreck your name. But here it is, we are to continue to forgive. And church, I wish today that we would be willing to say, I'm sorry. When is the last time you were the first one to say, I'm sorry? When is the last time you've granted forgiveness? And someone came to you, man, I've sinned against you. I forgive you. You know, now that there's, there's discernment to this. Um, Jesus told them that they must repent. If he repents, then you forgive. We're not to cast our pearls in front of swine. And here it is. If somebody comes in, in the church or in, in the world or whatever, and they slander you and they hurt your good name or they hurt you in private, I really believe this. They should at least apologize for those things. Here's what we're dealing with. I've shared a lot about churches, and I don't want to do it in such a way where it hurts people's understanding of church. Well, someone will come to a church, they've hopped around from church to church, cause problems in the church, slander the pastor's good name, 
post it on social media, do all those things, and they hop to the next church. They do a cycle, and they come back to the church, and some years have passed, right? Sometimes it's 10 years, 5 years, 2 years. They come back to the church, and I think it's okay to accept them. But what a lot of people say, well, just, just allow them back into leadership. Wait, wait, wait. Did they repent? There should be a process. We, must have talk, we have to talk about it. Well, they used to be in Well, let's just put them right back in leadership and watch them do the same thing again. If anyone slanders you in the public and wants to return to the church, I think they should get right up here and say, we are sorry for what we did. And be honest about it. Instead of pretending. And that's what we've done. We've, all right, just come back out like it never happened. We'll sweep it all under the rug and they'll continue to do those things. When we are to rebuke and confront these things, then when they repent, then there is forgiveness. Here, the next thing I want you to see, church is we have to exercise our faith. The apostles come to Jesus are hearing all these things. This is challenging, Jesus. You know, you talked about the prodigal son and that the older son was having to forgive the younger son. You talked about the place of torment for this rich man. And here it is, you're telling us we're supposed to continually forgive. Uh, Lord, increase our faith to put up with this stuff. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't give them what they want. There's a story in the Scriptures where people bring... Their, their sick friend who can't walk and they lower him through the roof of a home. And they said, would you heal him? You know what Jesus does first? He forgives him of his sin first. Well, wait, Jesus, we wanted him healed. No, 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 we got to deal with the root of the matter. And so Jesus is doing that here. A lot of times people bring an issue to Jesus. We want him to do a certain thing to increase our faith to make us better. And he says, no, no, here's the real issue. Use the faith that you have. He talks about this faith as a mustard seed. He talks about this in Matthew. Even if you had this little bit of faith, you could ask a mountain to move and it would move. You could uproot a tree and it would go into the ocean or be replanted. We could move landscape. Now, I don't, I'm not sure that God wants us to move Castor Mountain out here. So I don't know, I'm not sure that he's calling us to do that. But he's calling us to see that there's these great things that we can achieve if we just simply believe. We have made our faith such a small thing we've accepted sin as normative we're not living the sanctified life and jesus is saying this little mustard seed it's small but you can do great things if you would just exercise the faith that you have the disciples are hearing this this is such a challenging thing and here it is the church has to be retaught to trust in the power of god we trust everything else now this culture that we are in is radically, increasingly turning away from God and becoming sinful. It's so much so that you have friends and family members who want to live the rest of their life on government money. There's no faith in what God can do in some people's lives. We have to ask God to teach us this again. That we can embrace this. Jesus says this in Matthew 21, 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When is the last time you have asked for the salvation of a family member, believing in faith, and God gives it to you? I have a list at home of things that I pray, and I'm able to watch people I've been praying for for years, and I watch them step a little closer. And I see them coming because I'm believing and trusting that God can save these people that we're praying for. We want to see come to Christ. The Apostle John says this, 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He gives it. And church, we've not been believing that God can change lives. We need to start praying again. When was the last time you really got on your knees and prayed about these things going on, believing that God can deliver? I had a pastor friend years ago say, Derek, it's not just about prayer. It's about prayer and believing. 
I'm praying this and I'm believing God can accomplish it. Church, as we prepare to close, it's not about the need to have more faith. It's about just exercising the faith that you have. And here it is. God has been doing this work in my life where it's, it feels like when I first committed my life to Jesus again. It's how I feel here. Because I'm watching, I'm seeing things stir, and God has made me a big dreamer now. It's weird. I used to be very negative and pessimistic. I, I used to be a pessimistic realist. I'm like, no, nah, they're not going to be saved. <laughs> and then I started praying and believing, and I was like, oh, okay. So I moved from pessimistic realist to optimist realist. I'm still realistic about this thing. I'm more optimistic about things because I've seen that God can move, and He will do these things. A pastor friend called me the other day. He said uh, God had called him to another church, and I'd asked him how long he'd been there. He said four years. He said, I came here, I put together this list of eight things to accomplish. And when June came, we accomplished all eight. And I feel like God had called me to go somewhere else. And I said, that must be nice, you know, to accomplish all these tasks, right? Um, a couple years ago, we put together a top five list that we wanted to accomplish for the building and the property. Um, God, we have accomplished those. God's hand has moved. We've been able to do ministry and do repairs and renovations around the church. And it's a great thing. But I was led to put together this list. I call it the top, I guess it's 12 or 13 strategic missional initiatives. It sounds very business, doesn't it? And it's God's business. And we've been plugging away at these things, marking it off. I was in a meeting. I was like, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. We're getting close to the bottom. This is the thing. Mine doesn't end. I don't get to say, well, we accomplished it and I'm out. You know what God does? More tasks. Derek, the list is growing. 50 strategic missional initiatives. But every time we feel like we're closing the gap and we, we, we finish something, God gives us more to do. And I'm seeing that there's this big... I haven't even shared everything on my heart. I've only shared some small things and we've made headway in that way. What I want to do today, church, as we close, is let's start to become believers and dreamers. And allow God to stretch you. To not say, God, increase my faith, but just do it yourself. Believe in God from the faith that you have. You've trusted in Him from a young age. What is the next thing you need to trust in God with? And maybe it's, you know what, I need to start serving. I've been a part of this church for a while, and I think God wants me. And God's doing that to me. I'm serving here, and I feel like God wants me to do other things in the community. And I'm stretching, and I'm meeting, and talking about these things. I want to see true discipleship happen. Maybe God is speaking to you about stretching finances. Well, I give once in a while. But maybe you're to step up a little more and say, God, stretch me in the finances. You know, I, I've bought all these other things, but maybe I want to invest in the kingdom. Those things matter. Lord, stretch me in sharing the gospel. You know, there's ne you never have to pray, God, do you want me to share the gospel with my neighbor? It's just go and do it. We've already been told to do those things, to, to tell a coworker about Jesus. To invite them to Christ in the church. So with that being said, church, we're going to close in prayer. We'll bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to just pray. Maybe there's a person you need to pray for, a situation. Maybe it's your own thing. And we're just saying, be obedient and trust in God with faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you for such an awesome time. Lord, I enjoy coming in here. We can celebrate. There is joy in the house of the Lord. And Lord, at times we're, we're rejoicing together, we're mourning together, and you still have this mission we have to do through all the challenges and all the chaos and crisis. But Lord, I pray today that we just harness this faith you've given us. This small little thing 
I just think of little kids that have greater faith than people that have been in the ministry for years. They just believe God can do things. And I pray today that we believe you for great things. We become dreamers of great dreams and prayer, that we pray great prayers and, Lord, that we obey great commands. Lord, that we don't go into eternity with nothing with us, that there's something to show, somebody we've led to Christ, a ministry we've, we've served in for years and you've called us to. And whatever it is, Lord, whatever the next step is, whatever the challenge is, Lord, we trust in You that You can do it. By faith, we believe You have created all things. Lord, that You can do a mighty work in our personal lives, in our homes, in our church, in this community. We pray that You rescue people, that You save lives, that they're made holy. I pray that You give us the courage to step across the room to re-invite family members and friends to church, Lord, as we come together to celebrate the hundred years of work You've done through this church. Lord, we bless Your holy name. We praise you today. We believe in you by faith to achieve the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen. And church, if you would stand. I, um, I, really, I hope that there was something. Now this is the deal. James talks about this. We will be the doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. What happens is we come in here and we hear a message. And God's Holy Spirit is moving and you're pricked in your heart. And James talks about sometimes it's like being in the mirror. You see the thing that needs to be corrected. Then you walk away, but you never correct it. And today, whatever it is, I want you, as you leave today, to go and make the decision, I'm going to do that. Whatever God spoke to you about, say yes by faith and believe that He can do it. Amen? Church, you are dismissed. Your love, go in grace and peace. Go and fulfill the mission.